Hi, I'm Jeff Pagano, and thank you for tuning in to the Harpen on Rugby podcast, an audio companion to the Lencer and Ireland fan site, harpenonrugby.net. We are now available on Anchor, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Pistachio, Breaker, Radio Public, and Rocky Road. Now, one or two of those might be made up, but if you did hear one that you use, by all means, hop on and subscribe, and we plan to add more real platforms soon. On this week's pod, I'd like to give you a couple of plugs for upcoming events, one rugby-related and one not. First, I'd like to tell you about a charity gig called Rock for the Homeless. It's an aid of the Simon community and features some top-notch live music, including a good friend of mine who performs as Bede, and will be sharing some of his latest tunes, which are available on Spotify, among other places. It all takes place on Friday, July 26th, starting at 8 p.m. at Fibber McGee's on Parnell Street in Dublin. Do head along. It's only a fiver in, and it's for a real worthy cause. Check out the Rock for the Homeless event page on Facebook for more details. At the end of this pod, I'll sign off with one of Beat's tracks to give you a little taste of what's to come on Friday. Hopefully, I'll see you there. So without any further ado, let us fire ahead with this week's Harpen Points, the first of which is titled, Remember, Remember, the 6th of September, and it's all about an upcoming rugby event. The day of the 2019 Champions Cup final might be one Leinster fans want to forget, but one thing I did enjoy about it was having the opportunity to do some live harping on stage at the Sandy Mount Hotel in an event hosted by former contributors to Harping on Rugby, Big Joe Shep and Neil Kigo Keegan, who each have their own excellent online forums known as Three Blokes, A Ball and Bod, and The Couch Pundit. Along with Lion Pitt's Rugby Kino, Peter Burke from the Leinster Rugby Fans Forum, and special guest former Springbok Dan Van Zeel, we had a bit of crack on stage before the final kicked off, offering our thoughts on the Leinster Saracens match before kicking back with a few beers while we watched all of our predictions shot down one by one before our very eyes. And gluttons for punishment that we are, we're going to do it all again. Only this time, it'll be at the D2 Bar and Nightclub on Harcourt Street, Dublin, on Friday, September 6th, which is the night before Ireland's final World Cup warm-up against Italy at the Aviva Stadium. A fiver not only gets you in the door, but it also puts a pint in your hand. And this time, the special guests include Bernard Jackman. If you head on over to harpenonrugby.net, you'll see a banner in the sidebar, which will bring you to their Facebook event page for more details. Again, I hope to see you there. And now for my next Harpen Point, which is called Box Kicking Clever. I mentioned earlier Big Joe Shep's show, Three Blokes, a Ball and Bod, which is a weekly live Facebook chat, mostly on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Despite Joe asking me several times, I haven't been able to appear in the show yet. Hopefully he won't hold that against me and will be able to do the odd fan chat on this pod ahead of the World Cup. The reason I haven't been on is a certain four-year-old little demon, I mean, sorry, angel, angel, who goes to bed at 8 p.m. and definitely won't go to sleep if she can hear her daddy yelling at his laptop about power plays and axial loading. So instead, I take part by way of comments. On last week's show, I noticed that most of the blokes are unhappy with Ireland's frequent use of the box kick, and I respectfully disagree, so I decided to use my latest pod to spell out my opinion instead of a comment. The reason I don't mind the box kick so much is because for Joe Schmidt's brand of rugby in particular, I feel we have to look at the tactic differently. Originally, the box kick was used purely as a last resort. Our attack is going nowhere, so let's just hoist one up in the air and take our chances with arguably the best we can hope for being a 50-50 odds of getting the ball back. But over the years, especially since he got into test rugby, Joe Schmidt has cranked it up more than just a notch. 
He demands accuracy in every aspect of the game, and the box kick is no different. Yes, he definitely does seem to encourage his scrum half to put one up in the air often, but that's only with the expectation that he not only lands it on a sixpence, but also that he has enough support from his teammates to put the opposing catcher under the maximum amount of pressure. And it's this pressure which dictates how we determine whether or not a box kick has been a success. Was it all necessarily a waste of time if you don't win the ball back? I don't think so, especially if the ball catcher is consumed by three or four forwards driving him back and forcing the opposition to begin their new possession very much on the back foot. We saw an example of this in last weekend's rugby championship clash between South Africa and Australia. You'll have to forgive me that I didn't take down the names of all the players involved, but the box attacked the Wallaby receiver with so much physicality that they won the ball back moments later, and this is something Ireland have been able to do with great success, especially in 2018. Connor Murray in particular is a world leader in this area of the game, and I think it was no coincidence that our disappointing 2019 Six Nations campaign happened when he himself wasn't quite reaching those levels of excellence. Of course, that doesn't mean every use of the box kick is correct. Luke McGrath won't thank me for mentioning one he did at the end of the first half at St. James's Park not too long ago, but having said that, at least it does demonstrate a confidence in your overall team systems, which I reckon will have you generally winning more matches than you lose. So all in all, I say let's refrain from groaning every time a box kick goes up, especially in the early stages of a match before we know how our nines radar is functioning. But if they're going off target and we keep on doing them, then you can be sure I'll be barging my way to the front of any whinge fest. My next point is called Championship Minutes. The Women's Soccer World Cup, Wimbledon, and the Cricket World Cup all had their exciting moments in their own right recently, but for hardcore egg-chasing fans like us, nothing was going to beat last weekend's return of live test rugby. Of course, we're all looking forward to Ireland's World Cup warm-ups, but the 2019 Rugby Championship definitely has the edge as it offers competitive rugby and neither match last Saturday failed to disappoint. First up was the Springboks hosting the Wallabies, and this resulted in a resounding win for Razzie Erasmus's men, who looked in good shape especially at Scrum Half, where they already have two quality performers in Faf de Klerk and Kobus Renak, yet here they gave a debut to young Hersha Yanchis. While it may have been his first cap, but no exaggeration, he played like it was his hundredth, and he was easily man of the match, and not just for his two tries. Fast distribution, excellent decision-making, intelligent support play, and yes, even productive box kicking, like I mentioned earlier. Australia had their moments throughout, but were never going to threaten their hosts, and definitely had an Israel Folau-shaped hole in their attack. Later that same day, we had New Zealand playing in Buenos Aires against the Pumas. The world champions got the win, but definitely not in a manner anyone expected. They led at half time thanks only to an interception try by Brody Retallick and failed to score for the entire second half as Argentina got within four, yet when it mattered most towards the end, suffered from a severe case of knock-on-itis and were thus able to clinch what would have been a, an historic victory. The All Blacks really were there for the taking, but still the Pumas found plenty in their performance to bring forward. Of course, as an Irish fan, I was most interested in the displays of New Zealand and South Africa, as it is very possible that one of them will stand between us and our holy grail of a World Cup semi-final. One thing I noticed from the two test matches is that all four rugby championship nations are playing with a high degree of physicality, and this is something Joe Schmidt's men will need to be ready for. Although I'm a big fan of his structured approach, and it has brought us much success, we always have to be mindful of what happens when our carefully crafted moves don't pay off. 
Just because a plan doesn't work doesn't mean something positive can't happen. And as far as I'm concerned, it's how we respond to these situations that will prove key to our chances of success in Japan. Just for example, say a set move off a lineout involves one off the top from De- De- Devon Toner to Connor Murray, who then has to fizz a long pass towards the center of the pitch where Robbie Henshaw is running onto it to bust through the game line and put us on the front foot. All it takes is one teeny tiny bit of inaccuracy, or indeed one massive amount of pressure from the likes of Eben Espineth or Francois Lowe, to name but two, and Murray won't have Henshaw in his sights when it's time to make the pass. Yet we'll still have possession, and we'll have to rely on our quick thinking to get on the front foot another way. And it's not like we haven't proven that we can do this before. I'm going to round off this harpen point with a passage from my write-up of Ireland's win over Italy in Rome back in February. You might recall that although we won with the try bonus point, the performance was far from perfect. In this situation, we had just been pinned back into our own 22 by an excellent touch-finding kick by Tito Tibaldi, who was on fire that day. And here's the quote. From everything I've seen from Joe Schmidt coached Ireland over the years, the decision over our next course of action should have been very simple. Secure the line out, rumble through a series of exit phases, and if we get a line break, well and good, but if we get stopped around our 22, get Connor Murray to clear to halfway. But what we did instead was something very, very unschmidt-like. Before the Italian line could form, we took a quick throw to make the most of a broken play situation that was before us. And although we were putting ourselves under a lot of pressure to produce accuracy on a day when we appeared to leave it behind in Dublin, the plan worked, and moments later we won ourselves a penalty at halfway. That is what gives me hope. Having a strategy that is based on high risk v reward evaluations is all well and good, but the fact remains that our players are not robots. Some of your plans won't, passes won't stick. Some of your darts will sail over the jumper. Some of your tackles will be high enough to either get pinged or allow a strong runner to go through you. And some days, like this day, all of the above will happen in the same match. But if you have enough confidence in yourself to look up from the playbook and across at who you're facing on the field of play, it's always possible to find a way through. And maybe you won't win by a cricket score, but sometimes even a one-point football score is still enough, especially in a World Cup knockout. End of quote. And yes, I do see the irony that I chose to describe a situation where we could have box-kicked but didn't. What can I say? I'm a complicated guy. Now to my next Harpen point, which is called having a bonus to pick. Sorry for referencing that Springboks Wallabies match again. But it also raised another issue I've been harping on for quite a while on the site, and this is my first opportunity to say it out loud. For years now, we have been used to bonus points in top flight rugby union, and it has been an integral part of the game. You get four points in the league if you win, but that becomes five if you manage to score four tries or more. However, for years now, the top 14 has done things slightly differently, and over the past couple of seasons, this alternative method has also been deployed by both Super Rugby and the Rugby Championship. This way, rather than needing four tries for the bonus, you actually have to score three tries more than your opponents. That makes a big difference to the way you approach a game. Let's take last Saturday's match in Johannesburg. The Springboks dominated throughout, and when Man of the Match Herschel Yanchis crossed for their fourth try, under our current system in the Pro 14 and Six Nations, that would have been enough for a bonus point. Yet not long after that fourth try, Bernard Foley pulled the score back for the visitors, which under this system meant now the try count was 4-2, to two, and if the score stayed the same, the box would not get the bonus. Or to put it another way, it's not enough to get your four tries and shut up shop. You have to keep an eye on your own try line because that bonus can actually be taken off you. 
As a result, the Springboks were forced to play right to the end, and after the clock went red, Kobus Reina got the try that secured the bonus, which to be fair, they thoroughly deserved. For what it's worth, I reckon this system should be used throughout the sport. And I see another benefit as well, because it all but rules out what I see as the messy practice of teams running away with the win, throwing on their bench, and their opposition sneaking a few late tries themselves at the end for one or sometimes even two bonus points. Right, that's enough on that. On to my final harpen point this week, which is called Sevens on the Up. Here are some rugby results from the Irish men's team in June 2015. 43-5, 16-0, 59-5, 38-10, 41-0, 50-0, 54-0, 66-0, 79-0, 74-0. I know those results were against less fashionable rugby countries like Turkey, Austria, Slovenia, and Bosnia, but it's still always good to read out results from Irish victories, so... There you go. But now to my serious point. I can appreciate why it took so long for the IRFU to fully commit to Rugby Sevens on the world stage. Although I'm sure money did play a factor, for me it was more about talent pool. Even in the Grand Slam year of 2009, when it was originally announced that Sevens would be an Olympic sport by 2016, I doubt we had enough players to put together a decent program. However, our success at both provincial and test level meant that more and more were playing the game by the time we finally did take the sevens plunge, announcing the program in 2014, and actually playing matches in June 2015. Those results I read out were from the two tournaments Ireland had to win to move up through Division C and B of the European system. Apparently that squad were known as the Originals, and included Leinster players Tom Daly and Adam Byrne. Eventually, in April 7th this year, a 28-7 win over Hong Kong secured our place in the World Series. And not long after that, the boys in green kept their hopes alive for a trip to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo with a string of impressive performances. Now that the journey to the highest level is all but complete, the Irish Sevens program is faced with something of a dilemma. Do they keep the core squad together or do they give those players the opportunity to flourish in the 15-a-side code? Take Jordan Conroy. He has the potential to become a poster child not just for his country, but for the World Series of Sevens itself. Ireland's success wasn't completely based on his tries, but the fact remains that if he gets the ball with so much as a fraction of space ahead of him, he's going to score. But what if he fancies his chances showing that pace for Connacht or even Ireland? I suppose it's one of those dilemmas you like to have in sports. Of course, if I'm harping on Sevens rugby, I must also include the women's program. They have also done well, and their squad has often been helped by the addition of stars from the test team like Claire Malloy and Sene Naupu. As is often the case with the Irish women's program, however, with players not being full-time professionals like they are for other nations like England, the ladder of success will be tougher to climb, and in that context, our sixth-place finish at last year's Sevens World Cup has to be considered a positive we can build on. Probably my biggest hope for the Irish Sevens setup would be for us to host a World Series event somewhere in Ireland, very soon and what an awesome weekend of rugby that would be right that's all my harping points for this week now for a word from our sponsor The Harpin' on Rugby podcast is brought to you by the Irish Rugby Store. Head over to shop.irishrugby.ie to look at the latest ranges including the new Ireland jerseys from Canterbury. 
That's it for now. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, check into the blog www.harpenonrugby.net as well as our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Twitter at Harpen on Rugby. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Jeff Pagano, and here's to the real beautiful game of rugby union. No matter where you come from or what your favorite team is, keep that rugby chat going. And finally, as promised, I'm leaving you with a track that will feature at Friday's Rock for the Homeless gig. So to do that, I'll try to switch to my cheesy radio DJ voice. Hey there, guys and gals. You've tuned your dials to the red-hot sounds of Harpin' on Rugby FM, where we play all the hits all the time. It's time for me to treat your ear holes to a fat new track from the positively delicious new collection from Beat. Be sure and crank up your volume to the max, folks. This is called Just Like the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs>